Good evening. This morning we talked a little bit about uh, the heavens and the earth that God created, and we talked about uh, some of the ways that the Bible will talk about the heavens and the earth that we see around us, and some of the theology and some of the, uh, the worship that is described uh, based on what we can see around us. Paul says that from simply looking at the creation, you can see the invisible attributes of God. Like God is invisible and we can't see him, but you can look at the world and you can come to understand certain things about God. And you see in the Bible, a lot of times uh, the authors of the Psalms will do this. They'll teach about God simply by looking at the world around them. And, and there are fields dedicated to this in, in study today. There are books you can read about, uh, you can look at the genetic code that's within humans and you can can learn things about the God who created us. You can look at some of the animals that God made in the animal world. You can learn about God. You can look at astrophysics. You can look at the universe, and you can learn things about God. And so some of those ideas uh, can be really profound and deep and scholarly. Some of them can just be as simple as, like, there's beauty, and there doesn't have to be. For some reason, there's beauty. And perhaps the reason is that there is a God who appreciates beauty and created a world that's beautiful. And that's something that we get to enjoy. And that's something we can grow closer to God in as we enjoy and appreciate it. Like, it can be just as simple as seeing a sunrise and knowing that God is starting another day and that this is the Lord, that, uh, the day that the Lord has made. But you, you see a lot of these ideas in the Bible. And I think for us as Christians, uh, it's helpful to, as often as we can, be reminded of the goodness of God. Sitting down and reading the Bible is a great way to do that, and it's irreplaceable. We should definitely be doing that. But what about when we're on our drive to, to work in the morning, and we see the sun rising over the mountains, or we see the, the birds flying in the air? Those are also reminders for us about the goodness of God. When you see uh, animals, when you see other people, when you see children laughing, when you see things like that, let those remind you of the goodness and the purity and the power of our creator God. Well, we talked about some of those ideas this morning, and we talked about how in the Bible, creation matters. Uh, creation is an important part of the biblical story. And, and, and part of that is that God actually cares about the well-being of his creation. And in response, his creation over and over again, it's not just one or two random passages here or there using uh, you know, figurative language. It's, it's a key idea repeated in both Old and New Testament, repeated in different genres of scripture, that the creation itself answers back to God, and the creation itself worships God or praises God. And it's, it's a beautiful idea, and I think that it's something that, uh, that, again, could remind us to praise God as well. It's something that could remind us to live a life of worship to the God who created us. But if creation matters to God, and if uh, God cares about it, um, one of the questions that uh, we then ask is, if creation does play a pivotal role in the story of the Bible. What is the ultimate purpose of that role? And where does that role end? Um, something that I think is uh, an important study is looking at what the heavens and the earth are described at in the Bible, throughout the Bible. And as you do so, you have appreciation for the past. I think you have perspective on the, on the present, but then you also have hope for the future. And so um, even the phrase heavens and earth, 
That's a phrase that, yeah, it's in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But that phrase is used repeatedly throughout the Bible as well. Uh, often there is conversation about the heavens and the earth, and that it becomes like a, a, a brief description of all the things that God has made. And you see them throughout the Bible. You see the earth throughout the Bible. Uh, we talked about it this morning that when Adam sinned in the garden, the curse that Adam received wasn't actually put upon Adam. It was put on the earth. He says, cursed is the ground because of you, and it's going to yield thorns and thistles, and your labor will be toilsome and fruitless. And that's one of the difficult things. I don't, I don't think the, the curse there is work. Uh, work is something that he was supposed to do in the garden. But the difference is in the garden, his work was productive. And it meant something. And it, and it produced uh, for the garden. It produced for God. Whereas much of the toil that he will do outside of the garden will be fruitless labor. And it will be labor that uh, is, is not productive. And that will uh, end up causing frustration and, and heartache. And, and that's, you know, you can, that's actually a major theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. We did a study on Ecclesiastes earlier this year. And Ecclesiastes talks a lot about toil. And toil isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, work isn't a bad thing. But toiling without fruitfulness... Pointless toil is what, uh, is what uh, Ecclesiastes uh, author finds so much in the world around him. And that, I think, goes back to the, the curse that Adam received. But the idea of that is that the curse was given to the earth itself. And the earth itself actually suffers. The earth, after the Garden of Eden, began to experience all kinds of calamities. Human beings filled it with violence. And then, in response to that, Genesis 6 or 9, you have this flood that uh, is, again, an act of curse upon the world itself. And as you read through the Bible, you can see earthquakes happen as a result of human sinfulness and result of the fall. You can see uh, the, the land itself uh, in, in uh, the promised land. The promise is that it would spew out the inhabitants because of the sins that they have committed. Like the earth itself finds itself suffering. It's no longer that pristine temple-like creation that you hear described in Genesis 1 and 2. It has become something that is full of thorns and thistles, full of something that has uh, earthquakes and floods and natural disasters. It is something there where there's, there's barren wilderness and there's hardship and the earth itself groans for something greater. And so what I thought we could do in the lesson tonight is look a little bit about what God promises regarding his earth and regarding the, the ultimate future. Um, one of those promises comes from Isaiah chapter 65. So if you want to turn with me to Isaiah 65. Isaiah is pretty easily broken up into three major sections. Uh, the first 40 chapters or so, first 39 chapters, uh, are going to deal with uh, Assyria, and they deal with uh, what's going on in the actual lifetime of Isaiah. And uh, you have a couple of kings there mentioned, like Hezekiah and Ahaz. And, and you have these kings and what they're going through. And, and the evil enemy nation of Assyria is like the primary foe in those 39 chapters. But then when you get to chapters 40 through 55, uh, you see that we've kind of jumped forward a little bit in the history of Israel, and he's looking to the time of the Babylonian captivity. Uh, and he'll talk about Babylon being the primary enemy during that time period. And if you know what happens with Babylon is Babylon eventually comes to Jerusalem and destroys the city. It destroys the city, destroys their homes, destroys their gates, destroys the temple 
leaves it as an ash pile, and then carries off many of the people as captives and prisoners to go live in Babylon, a defeated people living in exile in a foreign land. And we have like books like Daniel are written, and and Ezekiel is also written by Israelites living in Babylon during a 70-year period of captivity, where an entire entire generations grow and grow old and die, and, and it's a tragic and painful and miserable time in Israelite history. And it's actually such a hard time that even when they come back home, uh, books like Ezra and Nehemiah uh, are written about when they are able to return back home. They return home and they rebuild, and, and you can see it also in Zechariah and Haggai. And, like, they come home and they rebuild, but even that is not quite as glorious as they thought that it should have been. They don't have a king anymore. They're still dominated by Persia and then the Greeks and then the Romans. And and they don't have like their Davidic king on the throne anymore. And that is tragic to them. The temple that they built, it's not as glorious as the one Solomon built. I mean, Solomon was like the the he was the wisest man and he was extremely wealthy and the borders of Israel were expanded and like so much was good and prominent and, and great at that time period. When they come back, they're just a bunch of exiles who had been living in poverty basically for 70 years. Now they return home and they don't have a lot of skilled workers. They don't have a lot of wealth. They don't have what Solomon had. So they build a temple. And if you look at Israel during that time period, it's they're doing some things, but they're also messing some things up. Uh, if, if you read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, Nehemiah ends with, uh, with a very frustrated ruler, like pulling the hair of his people and punching them and shouting them because they're not doing what he says. And that's the end of the book. It's like they're back, but things aren't as glorious as you want them to be. The people aren't listening like they should. Uh, and uh, the, the land itself isn't as fruitful as it once was. And that's kind of where the story ends. Well, if you're reading Isaiah, the last 10 chapters or so, chapters about 56 through 66, they deal with that time period of returning back home after punishment. And there's a lot of mixed words in it. Some of them are not very pleasant sounding. Uh, Look with me at Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah chapter 64, verses 8 through 12. It says, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. And you and all of us are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are your people. He's saying, God, you're the king, you're the master, you're the potter. We're your people, you're our father. Look at how we are now. Look at what our lives have become. Please don't be angry forever. And take a look. Look at verse 10. Look at our cities. Your holy city has become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire. And all our precious things have become a ruin. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? He's saying, God, think about where we are now. We're still your people, and you're our God. You're our Father. You're the potter, and we're the clay. You can mold us any way you want to. And yet, our city is still in ashes. We've been destroyed. Everything is like, come and revive us again. Give us something better. Give us some hope of something better to come. In chapter 65, 
God responds, basically, to Israel and describes his relationship with them. And it's not a pleasant description. You can read through it in uh, verse 1. God says, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation that did not call on my name. He says, I've showed myself. I've tried to let you find me. and You weren't even looking for me. I said, here I am, here I am, and you didn't even call on my name. God has made every effort to be found by them and to be reached by them and have relationship with them, and yet they have looked elsewhere. Verse 2, he says, I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face, worshiping other gods, and he describes some of their idolatry. But he's like, I had my arms spread to you, and what did you do? You insulted me and walked away. It's like, that's, that's the relationship that God has had with them. And so eventually, yes, punishment does come. Uh, you can keep reading in uh, verse 6. It says, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will repay even to their bosom, both their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, because they have burned incense on the mountains, which is to other gods, um, and scorned me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. God is talking about the the punishment that's going to come their way, um, the punishment that they have received. But as you keep reading... If you look at verse 10 and 11, verses 8 through 10, he's describing um, some better things on the horizon. Uh, He says in verse 9, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and an heir of my mountains for Judah. Even my chosen one shall inherit it and my servant shall dwell there. Sharon shall be called a pasture land for flocks and the valley of Achor a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. So all of a sudden he starts talking about, but there will be a better future for the people who seek me. Verse 11 is the contrast. But those who forsake me, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, which would be another god, uh, and who fill cups mixed with wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword and you will bow down to the slaughter. So he's saying, for the people who seek me, there will be a brighter future. But for those who continue to worship the other gods and forsake me, there will be punishment. There will be devastation. So as you keep reading through this chapter, he ends up kind of having these two different fates for his people. But for those who seek the Lord and those who were found in him, he ends up describing, you know, this time period where everything has been destroyed, but you're coming back home, but you're coming back home to ruins and you're going to rebuild. God will give you fruitfulness in the land again. But then he takes that description in this very chapter to a whole new level, an unprecedented level, where he says, not only am I going to give you fruitfulness in the land and like in Sharon and in the holy mountain and the valley of Achor, but when you get to verse 17, he starts talking about a cosmic renewal. He says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the formal, former things will not be remembered or come to mind. The things like the destruction of the temple and all of the disobedience and all of the bad stuff he just described, that's not what you're going to think about anymore. I'm going to have a new heavens and a new earth for you. In verse 18, 
But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. So God's going to create new heavens and new earth, and he'll create Jerusalem again. And it'll be a city not of desolation and destruction like the one that just was destroyed, but it'll be a city for rejoicing and for gladness. He says in verse 19, I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. God says, when I see Jerusalem blessed, I'm going to be, I'm going to rejoice in that. Like, I'm going to be thrilled when the people are blessed. God loves his people. And when they are doing well, God rejoices in that. And there won't be the sound of crying anymore. Verse 20, no longer will there be an infant who lives only a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. It'll be a strange, like something odd happened if someone doesn't live to be 100. Like, historically at this time, people didn't live that long. You know, people in our time don't usually live to 100. But he's saying 100 will be considered like a shorter life. You know, people are gonna, they're going to reach that age. People who die before that, it'll be like something horrible happened. Um, Children, you're not going to have children dying in infancy anymore or an evil empire like Babylon coming in and causing the types of destruction where people end up dying or you build cities but don't get to live in them. He keeps writing in verse 21, they will build houses and inhabit them and they will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. It's not like you're going to plant a vineyard, then Babylon's going to come in and take it anymore. This is going to be a new heavens and a new earth where, like, the best life you can imagine. Old age, people aren't dying anymore, and you, you're, you're able to live in nice houses with good vineyards. He says in verse 22, They will not build and another inhabit, nor will they plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. You know, a tree, child, parent, grandparent, great-grandparent, like they can all sit under the shade of the same tree. Uh, Trees have a way of enduring from generation to generation to generation. And he's saying that type of life of a tree is going to be what the life of my people is like in this new heavens and new earth. He says at the end of verse 22, and my chosen ones will wear out uh, the work of their hands, but they will not labor in vain. For child uh, or bear children for calamity, they will. Uh, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord, and with descendants, uh, with, and their descendants with them. Then verses twenty four and twenty five, you get this Edenic, like Eden type picture. He says, and it will come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear, and the wolf. And the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox, and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in my holy mountain, says the Lord. So a pretty glorious picture of, of like, what, imagine the best life you can imagine. It's like, that's what it's going to be. You build a house, and you get to live in it. You don't have to worry about enemies anymore. You build a vineyard, and it will be fruitful and productive, and you'll get to enjoy the benefits of it. And when you have a child, you won't have to worry about that child uh, uh, dying at a young age. Or you, you're, you'll be able to live and be healthy to a ripe old age and have a good, fulfilling life. And, and even the, the dangerous predators in the world around you, it's like, the wolf and the lamb, there will be such tremendous unity in that day that even enemies and predators and, and, and prey 
will lie down together. And the lions, they'll eat straw like an ox. You can go up and pet them. It's like you get this picture of the perfect, beautiful age to come. And that's the promise that he's making to his people. Yet when they get back from Babylon and they rebuild Jerusalem, it's not quite like that. Uh, It's like this promise remains because the life that they're living doesn't seem to fully satisfy it. And so as you get to the New Testament, after the Messiah comes and after you see his death and you see the resurrection, they keep holding on to this promise. But what you'll see is even the descriptions that we just read that were beautiful, they get maximized and multiplied even more so in view of the resurrection of Jesus. And in the age of the resurrection, when they think if he's making new heavens and new earth, what does that look like in an age where you actually defeat death forevermore? And you see all of the things that you saw in Isaiah are going to be repeated, but they're each going to be like multiplied in some powerful ways. Look with me at the, uh, in, towards the end of the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 20. Sorry, chapter 21. Revelation 21. We'll start in the first few verses. He's, gonna, he's going to be talking uh, quite specifically about some of the things we just read there in Isaiah 65. And he's going to be using a lot of that same language. But he's going to be taking even those things which were great blessings to the people. I mean, just kind of think about the blessing in stages. In, in a very real practical way, they were able to return home from Babylon to a ruined city and start rebuilding it. That's a great thing. But they were promised a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem where there would be joy and gladness and they would have great fields and they wouldn't have to worry about war anymore. Well, as you keep reading, they still do kind of have to worry about war and not everyone lives to 100 and and there's still tragedy that strikes. And so like they hold on to that promise, but it's even as great of a promise that is, it's not fully realized. And in view of the resurrection of Jesus and in the Messianic age, that that promise gets magnified to something even greater than even Isaiah was picturing. And I think in Revelation 21, you get a picture of what the Christian hope of that promise has become. In verse 1, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's the same language as Isaiah 65. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Or that's also what Isaiah 65 promised. It went new heavens, new earth, then it said Jerusalem. It says, and I saw New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God to the new heavens and the new earth. It's like it, it was, it, God made this Jerusalem in heaven, and that Jerusalem, that city, comes down out of heaven and rests in the new heavens and the new earth. And it says, uh, and it was God made it ready as a bride adorned for her husband. In verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And with God living among you, what is he going to do? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Just like a city filled with joy, the mourning and the the, the sorrows of the previous age will be wiped away as God wipes away the tears from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. And there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. So in Isaiah 65, it talked about those same things, but it said, you you know, people are going to be living to 100 and no child will be dying. Old men will will live out their fullest of days. Here he's saying, there's not going to be any death at all. There's not going to be any mourning or pain or crying. 
for the first things have passed away. And again, that's, that's language from that passage in Isaiah 65, where the former things aren't there, and we're looking for the new things now. In verse 5, he who sits on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said, write these words, are faithful and true. And so he gives this description. And then you keep reading and he describes the city in great detail for the next couple of chapters. And you see that he goes back from Isaiah, back to Genesis, and uses some of those earliest creation ideas. Um, you know, when God made the sun. In, in, but here, in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no longer a need for a sun because God himself is the sun. He is the one who lights everything. And there's no need for a physical temple anymore because God himself is there present with us in the literalist way possible. And he describes these in beautiful detail what this city will be like. And there will be uh, no evil that enters the city. People will do good there. You won't have the, the thievery and murderers and idolatry and all of that, the things that, that wreak havoc on our present world. They're not going to be there. And then in verse 22... I'm sorry, in chapter 22, in verse 1, he begins to describe Eden again. Only it's a new kind of Eden. It's Eden as if, and this is the way that I picture it, Eden as if Eden never went away. What would have happened if Adam and Eve had done what God called them to do? And they were in Eden, and they were fruitful, and they multiplied, and they filled the earth, and they subdued it. So that Eden began to expand throughout the whole world. And what, what, if, what happens when they build houses there and they build cities there? It's like you have a beautiful place where there is no death and there are cities there and God is present there with them and you still have the tree of life there and the curse is wiped away. There's no longer any curse. That's the description that he's giving here. It's like what we lost in Eden is restored and even the, the time for expanding Eden and for growing Eden into something even greater that's been taking place. And that's what we get to enter into. So chapter 22 and verse 1. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb. In the middle of the street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life. So there we have the tree of life again. Only we have more than one now. It's like, it's like even Eden is better. Isaiah 65's promise of a new heavens and a new earth is better. Eden is better. It's, it's greater than even the earliest descriptions could have imagined. He says that these trees of life, they're bearing uh, 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night, for they will not have need, uh, and they will not have need of a light of the lamp, nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. That's a powerful picture of this age to come. And it picks up on the idea from Genesis 1-1, creation of the heavens and the earth, to this promise of Isaiah 65, a promise of a new heavens and a new earth. And then you get, through the resurrection, this immortal new heavens and new earth that is described at the end of the book of Revelation that goes back and connects all of those themes throughout. In this picture that we're seeing here in Revelation, it's not just in this passage, but you see the thinking uh, along these lines uh, in a lot of the language of the New Testament. 
I want to look at a couple of passages where you just see this type of thinking and this type of language uh, where it pops up. Uh, Look with me at Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is in this chapter discussing wealth. Um, And you have the rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus and he's uh, wanting eternal life, but he's not wanting to uh, abandon uh, the tremendous wealth that he's made for himself. And so when Jesus says, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, he walks away sorrowful because he was very rich. And the disciples are a little bit perplexed by this. And Jesus says that it's it's hard for someone with wealth to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's, It's harder for that to happen than even to get a camel through the eye of a needle. And the disciples are thinking, who can be saved? Like if, if the people who God has blessed the most, that's kind of the way they think about rich people, can't even enter in the kingdom, who can? And Jesus says, it's impossible with man, but with God, even the impossible can happen. You know, with God, all things are possible. So Jesus leaves the door open to transformation and to change, but he does talk about the need to sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom. And right now in the world in which we live, there's tremendous sacrifice that takes place. And when Peter hears this, he thinks, you know what? I've sacrificed, and he has. Peter has sacrificed time with his family. He's sacrificed a business. He's sacrificed his home. He's sacrificed a lot of things to become a follower of Jesus. He'll ultimately sacrifice his life for it. And so, verse 27 of chapter 19, Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Like, is it worth it? And I love that in Jesus's answer, he, he doesn't say, well, that's a selfish question, Peter. No, it's okay to think about that. It's okay to think about what the rewards are for the sacrifices that you make here in this life. And Peter asks, and Jesus in verse 28 says, truly I say to you, those who have followed me, notice the phrase, in the regeneration When the Son of Man will sit down on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. Uh, Notice they are sitting on thrones. That's kind of like, remember at the end of Revelation, it says, and you will reign forever and ever. It's like there's kingly promises there. And here he says, you're sitting on these thrones and you're judging. You're judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's a promise made to his disciples. And he says in verse 29, and everyone who has left houses... And brothers or sisters or fathers and mothers or children or farms, for my name's sake, will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So he says, if you've lost things now, they will be restored to you more than you could ever possibly imagine in the age to come or in the regeneration. So what does that word mean? Uh, Some of your Bibles might not say regeneration. Some of your Bibles might say something like, in the renewal of all things. That's a translation of it. Some of your Bibles, if you have an English standard, will say, in the new world. Uh, Some of them will say, in the regeneration. But that's basically, it's the idea of the rebirth of the world that God made. That's language of new heavens and new earth. It's like this heavens and earth is going to give birth again to a new heavens and a new earth. And in that world, and in that heavens and earth, the things that we have suffered with now will be made right more than you could ever possibly imagine there. Jesus uses the language of renewal to describe the age to come. Um, I think you have a similar thing that happens in Acts chapter 3. Look at Acts chapter 3. This is the... 
the less famous of Peter's sermons. Uh, he has a couple right at the beginning of Acts. And Acts 2, we talk about all the time. Acts 3, just the very next chapter, he's preaching again. And uh, this one, it, it has a lot of the same uh, language and, and meanings and has and a similar uh, conclusion. But in Acts chapter 3, in verse 19 and following, he tells the listeners... Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive. And notice what he says, whom heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things. The restoration of all things. That if, if you're thinking about what God originally created this world to be in Eden, and you're thinking about the tree of life, where if humanity had not sinned, this world in Eden is where God created us to live. He's saying when all things are restored to that pre-sin perfect condition, that's when Jesus uh, is going to come to, to restore those things. And so the, the, what he's saying is basically repent so that times of refreshing may come. And Jesus right now, as Peter's preaching this, is is in heaven. But as people repent, he will come when it's time to restore all things. And it says that the, the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. And I think some perhaps passages like Isaiah 65 that we just read, one of those passages where the Lord spoke about this idea of the restoration of all things. Um, and, and so... A lot of the language about the age to come relies heavily on an understanding of the age that was past and that being restored in some new and profound way. And that's why language of Eden, that's why language of the creation like heavens and earth and new heavens and new earth is used so much in these passages. Look with me at uh, Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, Paul, I think, will use some of the same type of language to describe uh, creation as he describes through our suffering the fact that God is still proving to be faithful and we can have tremendous hope even in spite of suffering uh, because God has given a spirit and God has plans for each and every one of us. And that is true for you and I, but it's also true for creation as a whole. Remember, God cares for his creation, and he's not abandoning his creation. Uh, so when you look at Romans chapter 8, in verse 18, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So the sufferings we have right now isn't even comparable to the glory that is there in the future that we're waiting for. And he begins to describe the coming of that glory. He says in verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation, that's like the world that God made, the heavens and the earth. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So basically, you remember that curse back there in Genesis. Like creation has suffered and creation itself is longing with hope for an, a better age where things will be revealed and it will be set free from its slavery to corruption. 
You know, the idea of it's corrupted, the idea of everything in creation breaking down, that's a form of slavery. And creation is longing for the day that it is set free from that. The, creation is often personified in the Bible as having longing and expectations and hopes and, and shouting out praise to God and all of these things. Well, the curses that creation has suffered all the way through those are things that God plans to remove so that when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, he says, and there was no longer any curse. You know, that's the language. I think that's part of the same idea right here that uh, Romans is describing. If we uh, look at verse 22, he says, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. He's like, picture the world God made as like a mother going through labor. There's suffering taking place there. There's pain that takes place there. It's, it's, it's a difficult thing. And that's the present state of the creation that God made. It is suffering. But you remember the, the passage in Matthew 19 where Jesus says, but in the rebirth or the renewal of all things or the new earth or the regeneration, that, that's the idea of a new birth taking place. I think right here he's saying, creation itself is suffering in that waiting for the glorious new birth that's going to come the new birth of a new heavens and a new earth way where the the suffering that of the creation will be taken away and creation itself will be able to rejoice in god verse 23 we find out that not only is creation longing for that day but we ourselves he says and not only this but also we ourselves having the first fruit of the spirit even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So we and creation are both groaning. We and creation are both eagerly waiting. And we and creation both are waiting to be set free or redeemed from the slavery of our bodies and of the present pains that we suffer through. Uh, verse 24, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we persevere. Uh, with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. So that idea of the waiting eagerly. And then finally, he moves on in verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit is with us. And he also groans. So creation groans. We groan and the Spirit within us groans. At this present time, because of the sufferings of this world, waiting for the glorious adoption, redemption, uh, and, uh, and glorification that is coming. And so Romans 8 is, is a passage of tremendous hope, but he includes the creation itself in it. And I want to close by looking at one other passage that uh, in the New Testament that kind of picks up on some of these ideas. Uh, it's in 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we have this language of uh, a present heavens and earth, and a new heavens and a new earth that was promised that we're looking for. And uh, he actually, in Second Peter 3, looks at the heavens and the earth from three different uh, ages, three different perspectives. You have the heavens and the earth that existed long ago, then you have the present heavens and the earth, and then you have the new heavens and the new earth. And so the heavens and the earth that existed long ago that's basically Genesis 1 to Genesis 6. That is the heavens and the earth that God created that were destroyed in the flood. The present heavens and the earth is where we live now that is going to be destroyed by fire. But then we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth that will never be destroyed. And so in 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 5, 
He's talking about those who basically deny that, uh, that the Lord's ever coming back. And he's saying that they don't understand time. They don't understand the plans of God. Uh, but he says in verse 5, when they maintain this, that, that everything's always going to remain the same, Jesus isn't coming back. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens that existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So that's Genesis 1. Genesis 1, in verse 2, you have the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. You have waters there, and His Spirit was hovering over the waters. And then He moves the waters up to create the heavens, and He moves the waters over so that dry land appears. The heavens and the earth of long ago were created out of water by water. And then He says in verse 6, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So then when you get to Genesis 6, it goes back underwater. So like Genesis 1 through 6, with Eden and with Cain and Abel and all of that stuff, uh, that is the heavens and the earth created out of water and then destroyed by water. But then after the flood water subsided and the dry land appeared again, we have a new he- or a present heavens and earth. And uh, he says in verse uh, 7, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. And then verse 8 says, but don't, but don't think for a minute that God is slow about his promise, that he forgot about doing this. Uh, God is very patient with God. A day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. So we could say it's been 2,000 years since Jesus, but God's like, that's like two days. You know, it's like, it's, it's not that long of a time. Uh, so don't, don't judge God based on our understanding of time. Rather, appreciate the patience of the Lord because every day that passes is a new day for repentance. Remember in Acts chapter 3, he says, repent and return so that times of restoration can come and so that the Lord will come. Well, I think that's the same idea as here is the more people repent, that's how you prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus. And so he's saying he's giving, he's long-suffering towards us, waiting for more people to repent. Then when that day comes in verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens and the earth will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be exposed or burned up. There's a textual issue there. Uh, But then verse 11 and following Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That promise is what we started off this sermon with back in Isaiah 65. That's where God promised a new heavens and a new earth. Like, if you're reading through the Old Testament, looking for that promise, that's where you're going to find it. And he says, but according to that promise, we're still waiting for that new heavens and that new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so, verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. So, as you read through this, you get the impression of the heavens and the earth that God made he cares about. And there are different ages of it. One time he destroyed it with water. One time he'll destroy it with fire. But that's not going to be the end of the heavens and the earth. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And the present heavens and earth is longing for that day of redemption. It's longing for that day where it is set free from slavery. It will be a renewal and a restoration of all things. It will be a regeneration and a new world. And it will be something that, as the book of Revelation describes, 
when it happens and the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven from God to the new heavens and the new earth, that those of us who are there will live in the very presence of God. And the pains that we suffered in this present heavens and earth, they will be wiped away. All things will be made new. There will no longer be any death or mourning. And that is something that gives us hope. And that is something that causes us to appreciate the heavens and the earth that we live in now, but also to recognize that this is only a shadow of the glorious heavens and earth that is to come that we will get to be a part of. Uh, Creation matters, and all around us we see reminders of the love of God and of the hope for the future and the new heavens and the new earth. And uh, if there's anyone here tonight who wants to take advantage of that glorious promise and opportunity that God has given you. You can have your sins washed away. You can name Jesus as Lord of your life. And we pray that you would let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.